Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast, I'm Forrest Sanson. Last week we continued the strength of aspiration with a discussion focused on honoring our dreams. Today we'll focus on aspiring without attachment, dreaming big dreams and pursuing them with commitment, while also being at peace with whatever happens. To help us do that, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. So to start us off, could you expand on what you mean by aspiring without attachment? Isn't it pretty natural to be attached to whatever it is that we're aspiring to? Right. Well, on the one hand, I've had a lot of experiences rock climbing uh, and also parenting in which it was appropriate to be very attached. In other words, mm-hmm. to, yeah, to attach to that hold that I was clinging to, say, high on some cliff, and also be physically attached to my beloved, precious children. So there's a place for attachment in the healthy sense. But when people get caught up in forms of attachment that involve stressing or insistence or excessively and unnecessarily pressuring themselves and getting contracted, say, or pressuring other people because we are fixated on our beliefs or our our goals, well, that's a problem. And I find it very interesting to explore the intersection, uh, which is kind of a recurring theme for us, right? The intersection of both healthy motivation and diligent effort, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and also a fundamental peacefulness with whatever the result is. Sure, we might be disappointed. We might feel a sorrowful sense of injustice that's occurred. And somehow deep down in our core, we can live with what the results are. And we're not penetrated and disturbed in the core of our being by uh, reality not matching our aspiration. So that's, that's what I think of when I think of the territory of aspiration without attachment. Yeah, I think that some of this material is a return to what we were talking about in the previous episode on the issue of the dreaded experience, Hmm. how when we overattach to something, when it's just such a driving desire for us, it can actually make it tougher to pursue our real goals because we we get too wrapped up in them. And that fear of failure becomes so blinding that it's difficult to really do anything at all. And we can kind of run into that sort of paralysis by analysis. Isn't that interesting that that attachment can get in the way Mm -hmm. of aspiration? Yeah, it's a a funny dynamic. And it kind of makes sense that, uh, that you're pointing to that. But kind of related to that, why is it a good thing to aspire yeah. without attachment? So like, wouldn't having that sense of attachment, as we were speaking about before, really kind of drive us to pursue something with real passion and yeah. vigor and that kind of CEO mentality of, I'm just going to get up every day and do this for 16 hours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think right there, Forrest, is an example of a, of a broader thing that can sometimes happen uh, in which people will uh, raise a question. And then the The question is, do we engage the question in an abstract, conceptual, almost debater kind of way? Mm, Or mm. do we look directly, come on down here, and look directly at our own experience? So, uh, for example, one way to approach what you're raising is at that more theoretical level. On the other hand, I think if people look directly in their own own experience, they can observe two, two kinds of things. On the one hand, They can observe that often when they're pursuing a goal, there's a feeling in that pursuit of suffering of some kind, subtle or gross. There's a sense of contraction, fear of failure, 
anxiety, maybe a dogged, numb weariness, maybe an internal preoccupation with the judgments and evaluations of others uh, related to how they're progressing toward the goal or what will happen if they don't attain the goal. There's a fair, fair amount of unhappiness, I think, for many people woven into their pursuit of goals. And we can get, I think, overly caught up in sort of valorizing, it's called, uh, making it seem really heroic or somehow a lot, you know, a standard in life that if you're not stressed out and exhausted by the end of your day, you really didn't show up. You really didn't, uh, uh, you know, stand up for the team here or earn your check. And I think that's crazy. And it's an ideology that diverts people from really looking squarely at the ways in which their efforts are exploited by larger systems, including institutions or other people. And it all, it, that ideology of heroism, the heroism of work somehow, of, or rather more exactly, the heroism of stress <laughs> and exhaustion, uh, can mm-hmm. also be used individually as a way to, to lose sight of the, of the personal cost of, of what's happening and also lose sight of a different kind of opportunity which then goes to the second experience I think people can observe directly, which is times in life when uh, you were, let's say, wholeheartedly going for something, enthusiastically, with full commitment, not holding anything back, not saving anything up for the last battle, really going for it, and doing so in skillful and organized and diligent ways, really going for it, without a sense of strain or contraction or pressure involved in it all. And that, in other words, identifies those experiences, name the possibility or, or indicate the possibility that we can indeed go after things fully without paying the price that comes with the first kind of experience I was mentioning of, get, of getting very pressured and contracted and insist, insistent upon it. So one major reason to aspire without attachment is to uh, enjoy the personal benefits in terms of the the quality of life pleasures uh, along the way of the aspiring without attachment, that second kind of experience I named, and also without paying the personal price of the first experience I described, of getting pressured and insistent and contracted. The other thing I'll just say fast to finish is over the short term, yeah, uh, um, pressuring yourself, driving in a really stressed out way. Yeah, you can get a lot done in a day, a month, a quarter, maybe during a really, really tough year of your life. But long haul, that's going to burn you out. It's not a basis for long-term success, especially at the highest levels. Long-term success at the highest levels is much more characterized. And you can observe this in interviews with people who've been wildly successful, like Sir Richard Branson say. Uh, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, people at the highest level talk about bringing a quality of play. Going back to our last episode, Homo Ludens, the monk, the ape that ape that plays, the importance of playfulness and the importance of a kind of uh, lightheartedness that can be brought even to the highest aspirations. Great. I think that that's a really good response to that pretty typical yeah, classic position question. that, yeah, yeah we, ha- we have to be stressed all the time if we're going to be successful in yeah. life. So given that as a context, what does aspiring without attachment 
look like in practice,、mm. and what are some of the kind of tactics and skills we can use to aspire without attachment? So, first is just make sure you're doing the work, right?、Uh, mm. There's the aspirational part. This is important. Right? You're actually、uh, not、uh, sort of sitting there twiddling your thumbs, fantasizing about aspiring without attachment, but you're actually, you know, I have a little saying. I, I said it. Way too often around you, I know, but nothing digs ditches like shovelfuls of dirt. Just <laughs> you know, <laughs> making sure you're doing that.、Right, that said,、uh, as a factor,、uh, I know I know you'd agree with this. Carol Dweck's work on what's called a growth mindset is very useful. In other words,、uh, while being interested in certain outcomes and caring about them, also really valuing process goals. Along the way, in terms of how we pursue our aims and the process goal of is there learning, is there growing, is there development along the way, so that、mm. even if,、mm-hmm. even if yeah, even if we this helps the non-attachment aspect. Even if we don't、uh, win the race or or get the promotion,、uh, still along the way, if we are aware of how we can take refuge and find honor in how. We pursued the goal, and also if along the way we can、uh, appreciate what we've learned, how we got better at various things along the way, how we grew, as Carol Dweck would put it, that's really really useful.、Um, her primary research is, and those who follow it, it tends to be related to forms of academic achievement、uh, and the difference between learners who are fixated on a result like a grade, distinct from learners. Who are、uh, very interested in, in how they develop along the way, whatever the grade might be.、Uh, that research, I think, can be is wonderful research and can be broadened, as as some people are increasingly doing, to、uh, more general territories such as social emotional learning, or more generally、um, how people approach their big goals in life. And it's a wonderful factor to take on the attitude of being on the learning team. You know, the growing team. The, that's the most important team of all. To to be to be on. So, hey, Forrest, if I could put you on the spot, I've been really admiring of the amount of effort you've put into getting better at dancing over the years.、Mm-hmm. You have really sustained effort there. Now, I don't know how long is it? Seven, ten more years? Yeah, no, more than years than that. Pushing fifteen. Yeah, depends on kind of when you count from. But、uh, yeah, I started formally when I was eighteen. So that's a while now. And、um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. How would you describe the degree to which you've had yourself a, a growth mindset、uh, that's been involved、uh, meaningfully in how you've approached dancing over the years? I think that's been a big part of it. Where a lot of the time, what you see in any kind of competitive environment is that there are radically different levels of performers inside of it. And everyone knows that there are radically different levels of performers inside of it. Think about it, kind of like、uh, kind of like chess ratings, for、mm-hmm. lack of a better, better way to put it. Yeah. If you have a player who's a two thousand rated player,、mm-hmm. and they play somebody who's a one thousand rated player, the two thousand rated player is going to win. They have a ninety nine point nine nine chance <laughs> of winning, if not a one hundred percent chance of winning. There, the the outcome is not in doubt. Yeah. And you see this in sports all the time. You see this.、Yeah. In all sorts of places, 
And in the arts and in dancing in particular, uh, people are very kind of open and frank about that. Yeah. There are a lot of contests where you're entering at a level for the first time where all of a sudden you're competing against people who are professionals in the field. Yeah. And you don't expect to win. Mm. And honestly, that freedom from expectation mm. actually makes it much easier for you to participate at all. Mm. Yeah. And um, also and I think that that's... possibly turn in an amazing performance. Because you're Absolutely, not because hard on yourself. the yeah. stress falls away. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the big things that prevents people from performing at a high level is stress and pressure. Mm. And once stress and pressure in terms of outcome goals mm. has been removed from the equation, it's much easier to actually produce something that's at your highest achievable level at that moment. I know that you have a story about rock climbing that relates to this, but it's, you know, very similar where if you kind of set these, if you're in a bigger pool than you're really honestly kind of suited for, yeah. it actually becomes easier to set sort of mm. big goals and to take huge swings. Because if things don't work out, there's no shame. And if they <laughs> succeed, well, you feel great. It's like it's it's the ultimate win-win. Yeah, I think that's really true. I have this little saying inside, redefine the game to one you can win. And what I mean yeah, by that, absolutely. yeah, it's not win like dominate the other person, but to reframe what you're doing in that situation into something that you can succeed at. So to mm -hmm. go back to your, your point about chess, to or dance, let's just do dancing, say, all right, you're competing with people. You're not going to win that championship in that formal sense of getting a trophy at the end. On the mm -hmm. other hand, if you redefine it as, you know, I'm going to dance with abandon. I have nothing to lose. I'm going to explore sure. that. That's my game, and I want to win at that mm -hmm. game. Or I want to give my partner a really strong experience that I was amazingly supportive of my partner. Mm -hmm. and that's my game. Mm -hmm. I'm going to win that game. And that's wonderful. And by the way, uh, this has applications into interpersonal conflict. So, for mm -hmm. example, if the game, if you will, or the undertaking is defined as the other person behaving in a specific sort of way, uh, whatever that might be, large or small. Well, you're pretty limited in your ability to win at that game. Uh, you can try, you can say what you want. We've talked about how to do that skillfully, but whew, a lot of the results are out of your hands. On the other hand, uh, if you redefine the game, the undertaking with that person, to be about uh, speaking with an open heart, or listening deeply, no matter what the result is, or knowing that you're on record, whatever they do, saying really clearly what your experience has been, say, or, or what it is you'd like to happen from now on. If you redefine the game that way, whoa, you can definitely succeed at that. Part of what's sort of implicit in what we're saying here is the admission at a certain level that it's okay to fail, hmm. where... Oh, no. How un-American or something. Oh, no. I know, right? <laughs> how, how culturally inappropriate. And I think that kind of what we mean by this is not so much fail, mm. but not win, which is sort of what we're saying yeah. here. We're, look, like not everything works out all the time. You're not going to win every contest you enter yeah. in a dance framework. You're not going to get the job on every application you apply to. You're not going to get into every college you apply to, whatever mm. it might be. You know, failure happens. Yeah. And 
I think that a lot of the time, because of the brain's negativity bias mm. and just our tendency as people, we tend to really exaggerate just how painful it will be for us to fail. Mm. Most of the time when you quote unquote fail, nothing happens. <laughs> like the, the outcome that comes from failure is a continuation of your current state. Yeah. And if you're in a Which can position, be pretty sweet for a lot of people yeah, already. Yeah, exactly. For for a lot of people, their current state is is pretty okay. And even if it's not perfect, and even if it has a lot of things that are challenging about it, they're in a position to aspire at all. Yeah. And that implies that there is at least openness for mm. some other good experiences to enter the equation, which... Yeah. You know, for some people in the world, that's not the case. So at the very least, we can feel blessed for that. Yeah. I was reading a, a business book. Mm. I honestly forget which one, but <laughs> it was some book on, on entrepreneurship and the like. And the author of it was telling a story where he discovered some fact or learned some fact about nine in 10 businesses fail. And so most people would look at that statistic and go like, oh, well, I better not start a business then. But he looked at that statistic and went, well, I guess that means I got to start 10 businesses. Huh. And I think that that's just a remarkable and powerful way to reframe this whole idea. That is very interesting. If you're going to strike out, if you're going to strike out, you know, three out of four times, you need a lot of at-bats. It relates to another little teaching story, not to just throw something else in there. I was, I was just reading, it was this little kind of motivational meme online, but it's the idea of a professor in a college art class, and they divide the class into two halves. And one half of the class is tasked with producing as many pots as possible, just clay pots. And the other half of the class is tasked with mm. producing a perfect clay pot. Well, here's what happened. The people who mm. were building as many pots as possible were just mm. building, building, building. They were iterating and iterating. And on the side of the class that was tasked with producing the perfect pot, nothing was being built until the very, very final one. But what, But a funny mm. thing happened at the end there. When the pots of the people who are tasked with producing as many as possible with the final one they made was compared to the one pot produced by the perfect pot side, the pots of the class that were just generative turned out better because they had developed all of this experience. They had taken all mm. of those swings and they were able to apply that learning to that final pot. And I think that that's really indicative of many, many, many things mm. in life. And you know, a big part of being able to ultimately generate the things that we really aspire to is to not have excessive attachment to the little signposts along the way that may or may not fall aside for us. Well, that's really true. And that's also a way of protecting big dreams, big goals. I think sometimes that people don't realize that if they actually pick a bigger goal, and are, and are willing to risk the dreaded experience, let's say, of failing or looking a little foolish. Actually, a big goal is more likely to be achieved than a small goal because often that big goal mm -hmm. really concentrates the mind. Uh, there, to, to use a kind of, you know, sort of grim version of this, there's, I think, a saying from Samuel Johnston uh, that, quote, the prospect of being hung in the morning concentrates a man's mind wonderfully. And I believe he was saying these things around the mid-1700s when 
some people actually <laughs> could get hung. So there are, there are these kind of grim ways to concentrate the mind, but there are other ways that are that are loftier and more joyful. And uh, big goals are like that. In a funny kind of way, uh, I've often noticed that you know it takes maybe ten percent more effort to achieve a big goal that is going to produce one hundred percent more satisfaction, even a thousand percent more satisfaction or other kinds of rewards, like, frankly, financial returns. So why not go after those big goals? Especially if, as you said, you're giving yourself room to breathe so that you can iterate and take steps many, many times along the way, while also appreciating in that growth mindset that you're you're growing. You're defining the game to one you can win at along the way. And, hey, if you do get to that big outcome you've been going after, that big goal, it's like frosting on the cake. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So we kind of went down the rabbit hole for a second there. Are there any other tactics or skills or suggestions you would give people related to aspiring without attachment? Well, one that's been increasingly meaningful for me Mm. is to relax the sense of self. And it's really tricky here because very often when we pursue our dreams, there's understandably a fair amount of self-referencing involved in that. And, um, to be just a little technical, but really more experiential. If we observe the little mini-movies often running in the mind, especially in ones in which we're um, anticipating or imagining different kinds of futures, including different futures that would be the result of us making efforts to pursue a particular goal or, let's say, speak to a particular person in a different kind of way, If you think about it, there are two versions of the self that show up in those mini-movies. One could be described as the me, in which it's almost like we're kind of Mm. seeing ourselves as a character in the movie or a protagonist in the novel, the narrative. And then there's the sense of self as the I, who is the witness or the subject of um, that uh, mini-movie, in which there is a objective me to whom things happen and who we imagine or anticipate might have various experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, and so forth. So that kind of selfing process does tend to be very involved in um, aspiration, including especially in the domain of uh, career and work, or other very important related undertakings like making a family, finding a mate. We, I call it the inner audience, the internal audience. We sort of anticipate the reactions of an, of an audience uh, to what we do, and and we anticipate pleasurable feelings of self-worth, say, or we maybe anticipate unpleasant uh, feelings of inadequacy, let's say, which are also self-referential. So these um, anticipated mini-movies that have to do with self are very useful to become mindful of, particularly in terms of the ways that they might haunt us. So if we anticipate... Uh, criticism or dismissal or indifference from others in ways that would make our future self hurt, uh, well, then we're going to tend to swerve away from that aspiration. On the other hand, also problematically, if we get really caught up in how our uh, activities, our successes are going to impress others or get, you know, the clapping, the approval, the applause of others, and that, and we get caught up in that form of motivation, a very self-referential form of motivation, well, that too is problematic because, well, what happens if we don't get all that clapping? Or we get that clapping, and then as clapping does, it ends after 
half a dozen seconds or maybe a dozen seconds if we get a real standing ovation, and then we've got to move on to the next thing. So lightening up about uh, the self-referentiality, the sense of taking things personally related to, to aspirations of different kinds, I think is really useful. Also, it helps to recognize and to be honest about the fact that so many of the factors that determine outcome are really out of your hands. And they have to do with forces in society, the marketplace, external events, when competitors come online with their program or their book or their offering and you didn't know that they were doing that, or uh, ways in which sometimes uh, our successes are, are really based on a kind of privilege that we've acquired, including the privilege of just talents that we developed, that we acquired or we got innately, you know, based on our genetics, let's say. So it helps for me to kind of not hold it too tightly. And when you know that you're not going to take it so personally, you can not be so worried or stressed about the results. That's going to increase the likelihood of success. Also, frankly, if you're not so caught up in taking it personally and trying to kind of work others to get approval or impress them, they're more likely to be truly impressed and not so annoyed that mm -hmm. you're coming at them endlessly with this kind of pulling for approval and applause, uh, including in fairly subtle ways. Yeah, I think that's a really big part of a lot of this. And in general, that idea of holding both what we achieve and what we quote unquote fail to achieve a lot more lightly actually helps increase our likelihood of success in general. And I think that's a real underlying point that we're that we're kind of making here yeah. continuously. Yeah. Do you have a personal example of that where hmm. maybe you took a an outcome too personally or it really served you to let go of selfing and give over more into service or into the music or into what was happening and, and not stepping outside, you know, judging and evaluating yourself. Hmm. I mean, I think that for me, that's really a practice that's more about sustained mental health than it is about aspiration per se, where hmm. I'm a pretty evaluating person. And I think that a lot of people sort of view themselves hmm. that way. And I'm very ca uh, capable of turning the kind of um, scalding eye of evaluation onto the things that I produce as well. And that can be really challenging at times. There's this kind of progression that uh, people talk about a lot, and we've talked about it, I think, in the past on this podcast as well, about the movement from of uh, incompetence to competence and how you move from unconscious incompetence mm. to you know, unconscious competence through time. And I think that the toughest stage for a mm. lot of people is when their understanding of something and their taste outstrips their ability to produce the thing that they're tasteful about. So, for instance, yeah. I was I'll able say. to become tasteful about dancing far before I was able to manufacture something that lived up to that taste. And that gap mm. can be really challenging. Um because you're yeah. constantly working on this thing that you understand at some level is not good enough. And that's really tough. Like, that's a tough moment for people, I think. And a lot of achieving our aspirations, particularly when they're artistic in nature, I would say, but um, in work as well, if we understand that we need to be checking certain boxes that, man, we just haven't been checking, a lot of aspiring effectively 
is about kind of um, moving through that that nadir in the hero's journey, for lack of a better way of putting it, mm-hmm. and being able to kind of come to terms with that deep selfing of the experience and trying to kind of lighten it in the moment so you're able to move past it. And so that was something certainly that yeah. I experienced a lot in, in my personal progression inside of the arts. That's deep for us. Yeah, well, thank you. So I suppose to kind of bring things to a close here, um, are there any kind of final thoughts that you would like to leave people with around aspiring without attachment? Maybe the last one is this distinction between a kind of way of experiencing work or making effort toward a, mm. toward a result. And one way is one in which there's a kind of grim, dogged, top-down persistence. I think there's a place for that, to be sure. Uh, kind of, I've been in situations, let's say, in, in the mountains or in other situations where uh, I had this sort of revelation that nobody was going to rescue me. The helicopter was yeah. not coming. Uh, no one was going to write this paper uh, at midnight in college, uh, due the next morning. And there's a place for that kind of dogged work ethic. Okay. On the other hand, I think people can really overvalue that. And, and it, because it's familiar, that dogged, muscular, grim determination, uh, people can go to it because they know how to play that card. They know how to, they know how to do that. But there's a very different way, frankly, to, uh, make efforts and make progress toward your goals. And that is a one in which it's kind of like you establish your intention, you establish your purpose, and, and especially you have a feeling of it, not just a, an idea. You have a feeling of the purpose, uh, including what it would feel like to realize the purpose, for it to be fulfilled. And then, if that's meaningful or relevant in a particular example, and then what you do is you give over to your purpose. You, in effect, exercise your will to surrender to your purpose, and then in the giving over to it, let it carry mm. you along. That feels really different. It's like stepping into a river and uh, guiding yourself a little bit as the river moves you along in terms of its current, but especially letting the river carry you along. Or another metaphor that might be useful for people is one of like the wellspring, the idea of what bubbles up uh, from from deep within that can lift your heart and focus your mind and and fuel your efforts hour after hour, day after day. And that's that's where maybe I would just leave it here. But that's a very helpful thing to give over to that purpose, to surrender to it, to make room for it in your life, to let go of, to renounce those things perhaps that obstruct the fulfillment of that purpose or draw you away from that main line of the current of your life. And instead, you come back to the main line of that current, your highest aspirations, your most heartfelt longings, and let those live you or help you live into um, each day. Great. I think that's a wonderful place to close this episode. So today we talked about aspiring without attachment. Uh, We began by responding to some of the natural critiques of this idea, starting with it's pretty natural to be attached to our aspirations and why that can be a little problematic, and how just because we're attached to something 
doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be able to sustain pursuit of that thing with passion and vigor over time. And in fact, how excessive attachment to something can actually burn us out pretty easily. We then went into discussion of different tactics and skills that we can use to aspire without attachment. Those included having a growth mindset, setting big but, you know, hopefully achievable goals, knowing that it's all right to fail ultimately, and relaxing the sense of self, that idea of not taking things too personally, and appreciating how many of the causes of success or failure in your life really don't have your name on them. Finally, you closed with that really nice idea of letting aspiration carry you along rather than feeling like you're really pushing towards the mountaintop in some way. So if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice. It helps other people find it, and we really do appreciate it. We hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue the strength of aspiration with an episode dedicated to making your offering. Until then, thanks for listening.